Okay. So I think I have greeted you all. And now let's talk about the things that we're going to talk about. I think it is it is fine now. There is proof of dark matter interference. <laughs> uh, Xi Jinping is trying to hide facts. <laughs> all right, all right. Hey, once in a while, you know, you get these problems. Anyway, I think it's fine now. So let us get into the, 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 the issue. So where shall we begin? Shall we begin with uh, China? Shall we talk about Pakistan? Let's talk about Pakistan first. All right, Pakistan, our wonderful neighbor. Uh, and uh, yeah. Pakistan has been in the news the past few days, especially in the past two, three days. Uh, the Pakistani Prime Minister had, has made some statements that uh, people are interested in. And there's, there's been a buzz about those statements. And I have the Ask Avijit show coming up tomorrow, the next episode. And people have asked people have asked me a lot of questions about that. So let's take it up right now. And let's first discuss Pakistan. So let me put something on the screen. Uh, what has Mr. Uh, what's the name? Sharif. One of the Sharifs, right? Yes, Mr. Sharif. Pakistan Prime Minister Shahbaz Sharif, the, the other Sharif. He is now the Prime Minister. So he has he says that we have learned our lesson. And he is calling for talks with Prime Minister Modi. In an interview with Dubai-based Al-Arabiya TV, uh, Mr. Sharif called for serious and sincere talks with uh, Prime Minister Modi on burning issues like Kashmir. So what has he said? Uh he says that Pakistan wants to live in peace with India and he has called for these talks. Uh, Sharif said that Pakistan has learned its lesson after three wars with India and he, it now wants peace with, with India. Earlier it did not, but now it wants peace with India. My message to the Indian leadership and PM Modi is that let's sit down on the table and let's have serious and sincere talks to resolve our burning points like Kashmir. It's up to us to live peacefully and make progress or quarrel with each other and waste time and resources. Shabazz Sharif said, we have had three wars with India and they, they have only brought us more misery. They have only brought more misery, poverty and unemployment to the people. We have learned our lesson and we want to live in peace with India, provided that we are able to resolve our genuine problems. And there is some tweet by this thing. I don't know how to read this stuff. Uh, yeah, I think it's the Nastalik script. I had once learned the Arabic script, but okay, that's that's fine. India is our neighboring country. We are neighbors. So even if we are not neighbors by choice, we are there forever. Blah, 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 blah. It's up to us to live peacefully and progress or quarrel and waste time and resources. And he also speaks about Kashmir, that we want, Pakistan wants peace, but what's happening in Kashmir should be stopped, whatever he says, blah, blah. So that's what he has said, right? Um, and what else? This is from Dawn. It's a Pakistani newspaper. Pakistan Prime Minister said that he asked UAE to facilitate dialogue with India. Uh, PM Sharif had, during his recent trip to the UAE, asked Emirati President Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan to facilitate dialogue with India and vowed sincere talk with his with the arch, arch rivals if a channel were to open. Yeah, Pakistan has learned its talk lesson and is ready to ready for peace. I have requested Mohammed bin Zayed. He is a brother of Pakistan and the UAE is a brotherly country. He also has good relations with India. He can play a very important role to bridge the to, to bring the two countries on the talking table. And I give my word of honor that if we will be talking that we will be talking to Indians with the sincerity of purpose. Uh, that's what has been reported. Then we get more information here. 
this is the pakistani prime minister's office in reference to pm shahbaz sharif's in- interview to al arabia the spokesman of the pm office said that the pm has consistently maintained that pakistan and india must re- resolve their bilateral issues especially the core issue of jammu and kashmir through dialogue and peaceful means however the pm has repeatedly stated on record that the talks can only take place after india has reversed its so called like they are saying so called illegal action of august 5 2019 uh, which is you know uh, the revocation of that article uh, without india's revocation of this step negotiations are not possible and so on and so forth the same old nonsense right so they make they first make a nice statement and then go back to the uh, to the age old nonsense that they have always been saying so then in that case what is new about what he has said it is just words yes uh here's more yes pm sharif's call for talks with pm modi only after india revokes abrogation of article 370 so once again once they first make a nice statement and then they put conditions on top of it which go back to the same old time and you know tried and tested nonsense of pakistan so that's where we are Uh, sincere and serious talks and all that but with conditions that pakistan will impose who cares what pakistan what conditions pakistan's want wants to impose is pakistan a, a way, nation worthy of i mean even considering seriously right so that's a deal so and un- let's understand why all of this is happening yes people in india are like first of all many indians are celebrating let's dance the pakistanis want peace are you kidding me I mean Indians can be so incredibly naive I keep on repeating this over and over again let's focus on the actions not on the words I think I mean not all Indians are naive these days Indians are waking up kind of you know especially the people who watch this channel are not so naive anymore I'm so glad to see that but overall Indians are very naive and Indians are like yes let's celebrate Pakistan finally wants peace let's dance let's celebrate we'll have talks ha 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 yep so let's understand what's really happening here why has this this fellow the sharif the sharif number 2 made this statement and then they have put conditions on top of it what's happening let's look what's happening this is something i spoke about a week or so ago so pakistan uh, first of all let's understand that pakistan has been taken off the fatf gray list yes the fatf gray list is is uh, uh so now pakistan is no longer accused you know of 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 participating in terrorism and all that according to fatf so now if somebody donates money to pakistan that donation is no longer uh, considered to be i mean it, it is justifiable yeah they, they, those nations will be able to justify so when there are western donors international donors who are donating money to pakistan they need to justify to their constituencies to their public to their citizens that you know we are not donating money to a terrorist nation a nation that's a state sponsor of terrorism and now that pakistan has been taken off the fatf gray list it is kind of fine for them to do that they don't need to justify it too much because now pakistan is adhering to the fatf guidelines and all that nonsense yeah and of course recently this is what happened this is the thing in geneva uh 10.7 billion dollars have been pledged to pakistan a climate resilient pakistan conference in geneva so pakistan has been able to secure over 10 billion dollars in pledges just a few this is a new news report from january 9 so that's a very recent news report less than 2 weeks ago yeah and the un is very much involved in this entire process of of uh, giving money to pakistan facilitating facilitating that and all that yeah if the un is involved that it means that it's it's a cause that's worthy of of uh, approval and all that so the it's a un approved core uh, cause 
this donating money to Pakistan cause. This is a tweet by Marium Aurangzeb, who is uh, some kind of minister in Pakistan, yeah, information and broadcasting. So, uh, EU has pledged 93 billion, million, Germany 88 million, China 100 million, IDB 4.2 billion, World Bank 2 billion, Japan 77 million, ADB 1.5 billion, US aid 100 million, France 345 million, total 8.757 billion and so on. But overall it's more. Uh, and this is also what's happening. The Americans are willing to fund Afghan, Pakistan's border security against Afghanistan. So a terrorist nation is accusing Afghanistan of of uh, of endangering their border security, and the Americans are willing to fund Pakistan Pakistan's uh, border security vis-a-vis Afghanistan. So you can see the Americans are now so willing to uh, funnel funds and money into Pakistan. Once again, there's the same news uh, news report about the same thing. The Pakistan and the U.S. join hands against the Pakistani Taliban. So it's it's not exactly the same thing, but there is a faction of the Taliban within Pakistan which has set up a parallel government so that uh, the Americans are willing to cooperate with, with the Pakistanis on this matter as well. And of course, we know what the Pakistanis have been up to. They are, um, they've signed a whole bunch uh, of, of several kilos of uranium to the UK, yeah, shipped from Pakistan to UK-based Iranians. We don't know quite what's happening. You know, they've, they've hushed the story up. So maybe the UK is also equally involved in this. I mean, Pakistani Pakistan obviously is a, is a British creation. It's a Western creation. So if Pakistan is sending stuff over there, then maybe the UK is also involved. Yes. So that's what's happening. And the protests have been going across, have been happening across Pakistan, in Balochistan, in Gilgit, Baltistan, even in Sindh. Sindh Sindhis are asking, asking for independence from Pakistan, GA Sindh movement. Yeah. So there are all kinds of troubles happening in Pakistan. Pakistan is essentially one step away from being a completely failed nation. It's a bankrupt nation. It's a failed state. The only reason why it is not completely failed is because the West keeps on bailing Pakistan out. Earlier, China was also doing that. Even now, China is to some extent uh, cooperating, right? So Pakistan exists and keeps on existing falteringly only because of external aid, only because of Western assistance. And when we talk about the West, it means the United States. Yeah. So that is what's happening in Pakistan. And now the question is, why has Mr. Sharif gone ahead and made this wonderful statement? We have learned our lesson. Yeah. We have learned our lesson, uh, three wars and all that nonsense. And we are we want serious and sincere talks with India. First, he makes the statement and then they add all these conditions to that. Yeah. What is the deal? What's happening here? My dear Indian viewers, I mean, and anybody else who's watching, uh, I know that others, uh, people from outside India also watch this, non-Indians. So what's happening here? So first of all, please understand, these are words and then words have been added on top of words to put conditions. Yeah. So what do these words mean and at whom are these words aimed? Who? What is the target audience of these words? That's the question. Yeah. The, the thing is very simple. This is all aimed at the West. It is aimed at the US because optics matter in the West. Pakistan wants more money, more funds, more so-called aid from the West, from the United States and from other various US satellite nations, the so-called West. They want more aid. But optics matter. So Pakistan wants to uh, take a 
reasonable position or conciliatory stand a balanced position you know through words make the right noises say the right words appear to be reasonable appear to be balanced appear to uh, be contrite appear to take a conciliatory stance appear to be open for negotiations and then put conditions later on which nobody will focus on yeah so the entire focus this entire statement the statement is aimed at the west it's aimed at placating the western audiences to so that it looks like uh, pakistan is is uh, is being uh, reasonable so that this can justify the continuing funneling of money into pakistan the americans want to funnel funnel money into pakistan through a variety of means under a variety of guises various uh, western nations are being made to fund money to to funnel money into pakistan even japan is being made to do it even the french are being, are being made to do it yeah so all of this needs to be justified until i mean even now the whole world looks upon pakistan as a state sponsor of terrorism and a and a terrorist nation i mean you know pakistanis when they go abroad they pretend to be indians because they look like us and they have the same accent so yeah if if you say i'm pakistani people are scared of you if you say i'm indian then people are fine so that's what's happening so this entire uh, st- this statement of having learned the lesson and wanting serious and sincere talks it's aimed at the west it's there the pakistanis are trying to make the ni- right noises to placate and and, and uh, you know justify to to allow the western donors to justify the aid into pakistan and why have they imposed these conditions later on that uh, it can only happen after uh, the india revokes abrogation of article 370 that is aimed at pakistan's domestic audience yes so one part is aimed at the west the other part is aimed at the domestic audience so that the pakistani public doesn't get upset that why, why are you now uh, you know uh, willing to engage with india what about our our principled whatever stand on kashmir and all that nonsense yeah so part one of this is aimed at the united states and the west all the donors they want more money so let's say the nice the right things so that money keeps flowing in and then this uh, this condition that they have imposed that uh, india needs to revoke whatever that is aimed at the pakistani public so that they they can you know tell the pakistani public that yes we are, we have our strong principled stand and we will not waver from that so that you know the 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 pakistani citizenry the the domestic constituency is also placated that's what's happening so it's half for the west and it's half for the pakistani public and there is nothing in it for india these are empty words so let us stop celebrating words please stop celebrating empty words words don't matter only actions matter a politician it is it is politicians trade in words words are just tools they use for, for, on a daily basis if you look at a politician's statements over a matter of months over a matter of years you will see wild swings and and you know, routine contradictions they contradict themselves routinely so let's stop focusing on words what action has pakistan taken if they are ready for sincere talks why don't they take action against uh, the perpetrators of the 911 uh uh you know the the, uh, the terrorist attack in mumbai india has given all the evidence why don't they hand over the perpetrators to india the perpetrators are still roaming free have they taken any action against that if they are really sincere like they say take some actual tangible action then we will see that you are really sincere 
until then it's empty words and let's dear indians please stop celebrating this sort of nonsense because it is all just hot air that's what it is right so i hope that puts the entire pakistani <laughs> thing into perspective yeah it's it's just empty words it it there's nothing in it for india right now let us talk about uh, the the main thing that i wanted to speak about which is china what's happening in china so um china's population is 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 in crisis the total fertility rate is crashing so let's talk about that let's first put some uh, some some something on the screen yeah some reports where is it here we are and let's understand why this is important it's very important yeah people are suggesting other things we will we'll come to that <laughs> we'll come to that we have time yeah so here is a news report from look look where it is this is december 2007 this is what 15 years ago more than 15 years ago this is a news news report from that time it says in 2007 they were projecting that china's population would reach 1.5 billion by 2033 this is what was being projected in 2007 that the peak would be around 1.5 billion by 2033 let's look at a different news report this is from january 2019 just 3 4 years ago so in 20 2019 see january 2019 2007 they were saying it will peak in 2033 1.5 billion in 2019 they were saying this is a bbc haha they were saying that china's population will peak in 2029 at 1.44 billion that's what they were saying in 2019 then what happened this is an article from 2022 is it says could china's population start falling yeah China's population is stuck is set to get smaller for the first time since the great famine struck 60 years ago mao's great famine why and so on now let's look here this is from january 18 3 days ago china records first population decline in 60 years first decline in 60 years yeah uh, so it's now shrinking the population is already shrinking so the peak has come and gone the peak that we're talking about they first said there will be a peak in 2033 then they said there will be a peak in 2029 well the peak i don't know when it came but it's already gone and the chinese population is now shrinking it is declining yeah and uh, and if you look here if we see, see there are various projections that people have made about china's population and how it will it will evolve so this is one of those so we are at uh, let's say 2023 uh, 24 whatever it's 1.4 something billion but by 2100 the chinese population is projected to to become about 766 million according to these projections over here this is populationpyramid.net there are various pro- uh, projections available online yeah so the population of china by 2100 by the turn of this century by the end of the century will become almost half of what it is right now that's a, that's called a demographic disaster yeah let's look at the fertility rate number of births per woman in china so if you look at uh, 1960 61 it was 3.9 uh, around 1963 it became 7.5 then it started declining in the 1970s yeah in the 19 late 1970s the chinese started the reforms the economic reforms Uh, the the TFR was about 2.5 until 1990. Then in 
Then, by 1991, it was below replacement. The replacement TFR, total fertility rate, is 2.1 Okay, in any nation. So, since 91, it's been below that. Below, below, below. Now let's let's zoom in a little bit. Let's see it in the past few years. Let's let's see what happens here. So this is 2004, etc. 2017, it was 1.8, and then look what happens. 2018, 1.6. 2019, 1.5. 2020, 1.3. It is crashing precipitously in the last few years. It is. It is horrible the way the population has, the, the TFR has crashed. So what happened in the last two, three years? From 1.8, it's dropped to 1.3. Now it is it is around 1.2 right now in 2022-23. So, so something has, has gone wrong in China in just the last three, four years. Something has gone really wrong. So let's take a look at this article. Um, the last generation... Why China's youth are deciding against having children? Let's take a look at this article, uh, and you can you can check it out. The link is up here. Yeah. So this is a story. Okay, there's a video over here. I'm not not gonna play the video, but this this first paragraph is about what is in the video. The epidemic pre prevention workers stand in the doorway of the home of a couple who are refusing to be dragged to a quarantine facility in May 2022 during the infamous Shanghai lockdown, May 2022. Holding a phone in his hand, the man in the household tells the epidemic workers why he will not be taken by them. I have rights, he says. The epidemic prevention workers keep insisting that the couple must go with them. The conversation escalates. Finally, a man in full hazmat gear with the characters of for policemen, the Chinese characters for policemen, emblazoned on his chest, strides forward. Once you're punished, this will affect your family for three generations, he shouts, wagging a finger towards the camera. We are the last generation, thank you, comes the response. And the couple slammed the door. Right? So this scene posted online, went viral, and the phrase, the last generation, took the Chinese internet by storm. It captured a growing mood of inertia and hopelessness in the country, one that had been percolating for a number of years, but finally boiled over during the COVID-19 pandemic, right? The dark mood may be contributing to a key challenge for China, a widespread disk interest in having children. China's birth rate has declined precipitously in recent years. 2021, the most recent year for which there is data, 11 provinces fell into negative population growth and so on. Uh, the TFR has fallen below the warning line. Uh, it's 1.16 in 2021. 1.16. Yeah. Which is well below the 2.1 standard for a stable population. So that's what's happening, right? That is what's happening. The Chinese are now saying that we are the... Many Chinese are now saying that we are the last generation. So China, the people of China are now disinterested in having children. Many of them are now disinterested in having children. Uh, the population, the, the TFR is, is declining drastically. And this is a huge challenge for China. The Chinese Communist Party wanted China to get rich before they got old. But the reverse has happened. The Chinese, China as a nation has got old before it got rich, right? So the birth rates are declining. Uh, now let's take a look at other nations. Let's take a look at Japan. If you see Japan, Japan has been a poster child of the, of the uh, fertility crisis in Eastern Asia. 
so as you can see this is a statistics from 1960 onwards this is these are world bank statistics yeah uh, so it's been around 1.3 1.4 1.4 etc and right now it's around 1.4 1.3 yeah 2020 it was 1.3 but japan is doing better than china uh, we know the japanese population is aging now it, the average median population age is in the late 40s i believe in japan or the mid 40s i don't remember exactly where and the birth rate is way below uh, the replacement level but if you look at the statistics overall for eastern asia japan is doing actually better than everybody else so overall in eastern asia the tfr on average is 1.2 yes china it's 1.16 it was that in 2021 uh hong kong 0.8 imagine that macau 0.8 north korea 1.8 south korea 0.8 that's a disaster south korea is being destroyed by this thing mongolia is a very small nation 2.8 which is good taiwan is 1.0 terrible and overall japan is 1.3 which is the highest among the large nations among the significant nations so japan is doing well so compared to all the various other uh, developed nations or or highly developed nations in east asia japan is doing really well yeah among the major nations in in eastern asia so japan is doing well now let's see over here what it is about india before we come to that let's talk about what causes what causes this to happen what causes the the total fertility rate to decline one of the reasons let's let's come back to the, the the statistics in a while so what causes tfr to decline you we are now seeing in india also the tfr has gone below 2.1 it's a 2.0 or something right now in the past it was different so what causes the total fertility rate of a nation or 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 a, or a population or a, or a culture to decline firstly it's typically because people are working too hard typically because both parents are working full time they are exhausted and they the 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 family the extended family system has disappeared now you have a nuclear family system or maybe even single parents yeah so how do, who's going to take care of the kid if you have a kid who's going to take care of the kid and that's one reason so people are working too hard both parents have to work full time in order to have a re- decent uh, you know uh, standard of living yeah stable income and all that you need both parents to work full time so which means that nobody is going to take care of the kids if there are any kids or if the lady gets pregnant then who's going to you know half the income goes away if that happens that's one of the things then you have high costs of living very high costs of living and very high costs of raising children i mean you want to send your kid to a good school it's going to cost a lot of money every year so that again it makes people reluctant to have multiple kids one and enough maybe two and enough even two is not happening these days so it's extremely uh it's extremely expensive to raise children it's the the cost of living are very high yeah the more mouths uh, the more members you have in your family the more the costs are yeah and you obviously want to ensure that whatever child or children you have they get the best possible education you can give them yeah and if you have two or three then you may have to compromise on that so many people are opting for one or many are not even having any kids Uh, so there and then both the parents have no time for children uh people are exhausted and in some cases in some nations there is a, a sense of hopelessness there is a loss of faith in the country and the system which is what we are seeing in china yeah and there's also the 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 impact nowadays of what we call wokism yeah uh that uh, and and the glorification of single parent families 
either a single mother typically a single mother family men are bad toxic masculinity so wokeism is destroying this entire thing and it's causing the tfr to drop in many nations especially western nations yeah so these are the reasons why uh, the birth rates are dropping in various nations now in india also it's dropping in india also the, the tfr is dropping because nowadays uh, people are moving towards a more urban lifestyle people are moving to larger cities even in, in tier 2 and tier 3 cities we have uh, both parents typically working full time yeah and that's the only way you can have a decent livelihood a decent uh, de- decent lifestyle i mean there is this entire real estate thing everybody wants to have an have a home people buy a home which they can't afford it typically costs like 50 lakh rupees 1 crore rupees in big cities and all just a one bedroom flat yeah they take a loan to do that and then they have to work for the next 20 years to repay that loan and both parents typically have to work both both uh, spouses have to work so these are the things that that, that are contributing to india's uh, declining fertility rate so let's take the look uh, take a look at w- what's happening in india let's let's embiggen this yeah uh, so we spoke about east asia let's take a look at india so right now in 2019 2020 the indian tfr was 2.0 if you look at ladakh jnk is 1.3 1.4 most states are below 2 gujarat is a large state it's 1.9 rajasthan and mp are 2.0 up is still providing some hope 2.4 bihar is 3 but manipur is 2.2 jharkhand is 2.3 but overall it's it's less than 2 yeah so that the replacement uh, rate which is the required for a stable population is 2.1 yeah and in india we find lots of influencers and people saying that don't get married don't have children or only have one child that is a disastrous uh, thing to to espouse and i will un- explain why yeah so this is the deal in india this is of course we still have uh, we are still at 2 which is not bad so india is now projected to overtake china as the world's most populous country by 2023 it may already have happened some people are reporting that india has overtaken china so uh, india is expected to peak at 1.7 billion in 2064 that's what is being projected let's take a look here once again let's compare india and china uh so india's uh, median average popular average age of the indian population is in the late 20s yeah it's below 30 maybe 27 28 somewhere around there in china it's in the late 40s maybe maybe 47 48 kind of around where japan is right now so china is facing a similar situation when, when it comes to average age of the population as japan but uh, china's tfr has fallen even below japan and china is an enormous nation so that's a disaster in the making yeah so India is in a much better and more advantageous position right now. That's what we call the demographic dividend. We have to take a full advantage of this. Let's see some other. See, this is uh, from a book which I forget, but it's it's uh, it's from 2016. So, table of Asian countries and UN calculated window of demographic opportunity. Window of demographic opportunity for China. The demographic opportunity window was 1990 to 2025. As of 2016, nine years remaining. As of today. two or three years left for china's demographic window of opportunity korea the window was from 1985 to 2030 seven they i think they're talking about the unified korea if i'm or south korea doesn't matter it's up to 2030 and then the window will close 
for Japan, it's gone. The window was up to 1995. That's what it says. Indonesia, 2040. Singapore, 2015. So Singapore also, it's gone. The opportunity. Vietnam, 2040. And India, 2050. So of all these major nations in Asia, India has the biggest window of opportunity, the window of demographic opportunity. It's up to 2050. Right? Of course, our uh, TFR is also falling right now. So one has to, we have to do something about it. But uh, we have the biggest window of opportunity. And India is now growing well compared to all the other nations economically. Yeah. And uh, here's more. China's population distribution by age group, millions. So 2020, 20 to, 20 to 64 age group. Uh, sorry, 19 and younger is 318 million. 65 and older is 173 million and all. By 2060, you can see that uh, it's going to shift significantly. Uh, so that's the deal. So the, the younger cohort in the demographic uh, stratum is going to shrink significantly by 2016, 2060. And the population is going to age significantly. So that is what's happening in China. Uh, so in India, we have this demographic window, which the UN says will be open until 2050. And our TFR is also dropping. So we have to ensure that the, the TFR, India's TFR, does not drop rapidly because that is going to cause, if that happens, it will cause a significant crash in a demographic crisis after two or three generations, after 20, 30, 40, maybe 50 years. Yeah, it won't happen now. It's going to be a disaster half a century in the future. So the Chinese, they, they adopted this one-child policy, which was imposed upon them by the CCP, by the Chinese Communist Party. And you can see what's happening now. And now the TFR is declining even more rapidly. And you're going to see the, 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 the consequences of that in 20 to 40 years. It's going to be a disaster for China. Yeah. So China is a cautionary tale for all of us. We obviously have an enormous population, 1.4 billion in a subcontinent sized in, in the nation of India is actually very high. Historically, undivided India would used to have a population of, of about 300 million. Yeah, that's almost one fifth of what we have today. So we have a population that may be too large for us. But the solution is not to stop having children or only have a one-child policy or even a two-child policy. We need to slowly, gradually, or maybe a century, bring the population uh, to a more manageable level. But the solution is not to stop, stop, stop having children. That's going to cause a disaster in the future. So th those people, I mean, the people who are saying to stop getting married, stop having kids, they mean well, but they have not thought through the consequences of what they are preaching, right? So China is the best example. It's the best cautionary tale that we can think of. Let's not go down the way to China, the, the way of China. And, you know, Shinzo Abe, the late Japanese leader, he kept on exhorting the people of Japan to have children. Yeah, and so... Japan seems to be kind of following what he what he has been saying. They are doing better than China and most other nations in Eastern Asia. So that's also a, a message that we Indians need to heed. We should have children and we should have children reasonably early. If you have children in your late 30s or mid 30s, you will be it will be it will be very difficult for you to to raise those kids because you are by the time in your near mid 30s and, and early 40s, that's the peak of your career. Yeah, and that's where you need to establish yourself thoroughly. And if you're going to have kids, then it's going to be extremely hard to balance these two aspects of life. The best policy 
is to have kids in your early 20s and by the time you're in, you know, you're in your early 40s your kids have grown up and then you can concentrate on career because by, by the time you're in your 40s you fully mature as an adult until you are 40 you are still kind of growing and learning and you're still not completely mature so you should have kids early that's the message that that's the cautionary message that china gives us and that's what uh, shinzo abe used to exhort the people of japan have kids and have kids early and at least have two kids every couple should have at least two kids and let the population drop very gradually we cannot engineer society or try to reengineer society uh, artificially and unnaturally yeah so that is the cautionary tale that china gives us now why is this uh, population drop of china so dangerous uh, let's take a look at this look at the incredible precipitous drop in china's population it is dangerous because now the chinese communist party is going to preside over a country that is not going to have good economic growth the economy is right now shrinking even if they are able to reboot the economy start of manufacturing again and all that people are despondent people are tired and the chinese communist party's grip over the nation is so strong that the only form of protest that is left for the people of china is to stop having kids which means that you can enslave us but you will not be able to enslave the future generations we will not give you future generations to enslave that's what's happening in china so the people are this is called passive aggressive resistance the only form of resistance left for the people of china is passive aggression not having kids so that's the kind of sentiment you are seeing in china right now these horrible draconian drastic lockdowns caused because the chinese vaccine doesn't work it's it's ruined chinese society i really feel sorry for the people of china yeah so the chinese communist party is now going to preside mr xi jinping president xi emperor xi is going to preside over a population that is not in the mood to cooperate a population that has lost hope in the country and the leadership a population that doesn't want to have any kids which means it's a population that wants to just end itself you know that's the kind which has a death wish that's the kind of population the chinese are communist party is going to preside over and you may see eruptions of of uh, protests and discontent and malcontent uh, which could be very dangerous for the chinese communist party the chinese communist party has this uh, unspoken unwritten social contract with the people of china the social contract is that you must obey us completely fully in exchange for that we're going to give you good standards of living and high economic growth and we're going to give you back pride in your country so the country is going to do very well the china is going to be become a great power the middle kingdom it will become a superpower and you will you we will make we will make a country create a country that you can be proud of in exchange for that you must accept our dictatorship and you must accept whatever we impose on you that's the kind of social contract china has had uh under the chinese communist party now the chinese communist party is not slowly going into dangerous territory because it's no longer in a position to keep on fulfilling its end of the bargain great standards of living great economic growth uh, uh and and pride in the nation china is not doing that well anymore many nations have stopped trusting china after the covid-19 pandemic covid 19 yeah uh, the belt and road initiative is floundering the maritime silk road is floundering the chinese are trying their best you know Uh, they are cre- trying to expand bricks and all that but overall china is on the decline uh, 
So the Chinese Communist Party is no longer in a position to hold its end of the bargain. And as the years go by, it will be increasingly under more and more pressure from itself, from its own malcontent leaders, from the population, which may erupt into any kind of, you know, into things that they don't like. And when this, this sort of situation presents itself, and it's increasingly presented, presenting itself, the leadership may look for diversions and distractions outside the country, which means the uh, the Chinese Communist Party may go into an expansionist mode, you know, territorial expansion, maybe start wars with, with other nations, maybe go for Taiwan, maybe start something with India if they dare to, maybe something else. So a nation that is cornered is a dangerous nation, especially when it is still a very large economy and it has a very large military. That's a dangerous nation. Yeah. So if the Chinese Communist Party starts feeling the pressure, starts feeling the heat, and if things go for bad even further, and if they panic for whatever reason, it could be a very dangerous time for the world. Yeah, they could try something in Taiwan, they could try something in India, they could try something with Japan, they could try something somewhere else, who knows? Yeah. So these are dangerous times. We are living in dangerous times. We're living in, in what they call interesting times. Yeah, things are changing very rapidly. We are witnessing, my dear friends, we are witnessing in, 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 in real time a complete transformation of the global geopolitical climate and the geopolitical landscape. Yeah. Uh, so this is overall dangerous for Asia. It's dangerous for India. It may be good news for the US if the decline continues. Even the US, I'm not sure what the TFR is in the US. Shall we take a look at the TFR in the US? Uh, what is the population? Uh, let's see what's happening in the United States. The US will be all the way at the bottom because it's U. Let's find out. How is it for the US? UVW, United States. Okay, the US is at 2.6, apparently. The US is at 2.6. Uh, United. Let's put that on the screen. No, it won't take it. Okay, so it, I just take a, took a look. It, the, for the US, the TFR is at 1.6, which is not that bad as compared to China. It's not that bad as compared to Russia. Uh, I don't know, Russia, Japan, and so on. Uh, but in the US also, I believe the TFR must be declining. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. Like I said, wokeism is a big cause for the decline of, of uh, TFR in a nation. Yeah, uh, they talk about uh, they they glorify single parent families, especially a family where the only parent is a woman, uh, and things like that. So that is going to cause the decline of a population. And you know, the U.S. is in, in American society is in chaos right now. It's in turmoil. Uh, so that's what we are witnessing worldwide. The overall TFR of the world is declining. And especially for China, it's it's declined very precipitously. So that's why we are living through dangerous times. And the most frightening thing is that the people of China are now protesting by not having kids. That's the only form of protest they have left to themselves. Yeah. Imagine how authoritarian, how brutal, how draconian the society is, where the only form of protest we have left is that we will not have kids anymore. That's that's sad. That's genuinely sad, you know. So that's where we are. And that's a, that's dangerous times for all of us. So India needs to keep a very close eye on China because the Chinese Communist Party is definitely feeling 
the heat it's feeling the pressure yeah so yeah that's something that's happening in china and that's something that's important for us in india china is declining overall it's it's good for the world that if, if, if this draconian authoritarian dangerous nation declines but it's also dangerous so that's where we are now what shall we talk about let's talk about um Ukraine, obviously, Russia and Ukraine. What's happening in the, in that place? Uh, the conflict goes on, but what is the uh, the current situation? Let's put that on the screen. Uh, we have been anticipating over here a possible winter offensive. So let's let's see what's happened uh, in recent times, in the past week or so. This is from two days ago. Ukraine's interior ministry leadership killed in a helicopter crash. The entire interior ministry leadership has been killed in a heli- in a single helicopter crash imagine taking your entire top leadership of your home ministry which is the interior ministry putting them in a single helicopter and then seeing the helicopter crash that sounds very strange i mean it's a, it's a well known and well accepted principle across the world that when you have a top leadership you never put them all in one aircraft especially in a helicopter because rotary wing aircraft are much more dangerous than fixed wing aircraft yeah helicopters are inherently more dangerous than regular airplanes so the entire leadership of the ukrainian Inter- interior ministry was placed in a helicopter which crashed let's see something else several theories for helicopter crash under investigation according to ukraine's president zelensky the investigation is ongoing there are several theories and i'm not authorized to talk about any of them when a missile hits poland eastern poland the ukrainians were very quick to blame russia without any investigation happening the ukrainians straight away blamed russia and they tried to precipitate world war 3 that's when the last g20 summit was going on in bali indonesia yes now when this happens they are refraining the ukrainians are refraining from talking about russia i would have expected they would immediately point fingers at russia and blame russia for what's happened but they are not saying anything about russia that sounds very strange and very fishy yes mm-hmm. why are they not blaming russia they are blaming russia for everything but not for this extremely strange uh so yeah so uh, i think this helicopter crash it killed about 17 people um who all died in this let's let's see here um interior minister denis monastirsky along with the first deputy minister in the state secretary and other people also which is very very uh, strange right so that's something that's happened and they are not blaming russia which makes it even stranger something is fishy over here yep then let's see what's happening in belarus so mr lavrov uh, uh, three days ago was in belarus in minsk the capital of belarus and uh, mr lavrov is uh, russia's foreign minister and he met mr uh, lukashenko yeah uh, lukashenko is the president mr lukashenko is the president of belarus he is he has been the president since the 1990s yeah he has won every single election how nice so this is the thing this is the the dialogue they had i'm going to mute this i don't want the sound to be heard it's not important and look at the body language of mr lukashenko extremely uh, nervous and uh, he's explaining himself to mr lavrov mr lavrov is sitting like he is the host in in this meeting this is uh, another uh, belarusian official 
So it's like a school go a school kid going to the principal and explaining himself, giving a report. And Mr. Lavrov is sitting very comfortably, very nonchalantly, and just listening. Yeah. So it's clearly it it shows you what sort of sort of relationship Belarus and Russia have. Russia is the master, and Belarus is is well, you know, the obedient pupil, obedient servant, whatever you want to call it. So Mr. Lukashenko said that we did everything that we promised to Russia in the operation in Ukraine. As we know, uh, Belarus is a very close ally of Russia. You could say it's a satellite state of Russia. They have amended their constitution, Belarus, uh, to allow Russia to place nuclear weapons and missiles on Belarusian territory. Yeah. So uh, now, now let's see where Belarus is situated. Let's go to the map. We haven't seen the map today, which is... Well, that needs to be rectified. So you have Ukraine. North of Ukraine, you have Russia and Belarus. Belarus is to the west of Russia and to the east of Poland. So we know that Russia and Belarus have been uh, engaging in military exercises in uh, north of Ukraine. Lots of military equipment from Russia has been uh, moved into Belarus. Russian soldiers and troops have also moved into Belarus. So there could be possibly Belarusian involvement soon in this conflict. It is a possibility, yes. So that's uh, the deal. So Belarus could get involved in this. And right now, the conflict seems to be meandering. There is action, like I spoke about last week, there is action in Solidar. There is action in um, in the, what is it called? In in Bakhmut, in the, Bakhmut, in the town of Bakhmut and in the mining city of Solidar. So the Russians are and the Ukrainians are fighting it out, and the Russians seem to be slowly, gradually, gradually, inch by inch, prevailing over there. Uh, so that's the situation. But there is, there could be, the entry of Belarus in this conflict sooner or later. That is a possibility. We have to keep that possibility in mind. What else is happening? So this is a report from two, three days ago. Putin ally Medvedev, Dmitry Medvedev warns NATO of nuclear war if Russia is defeated in Ukraine. That's what Yahoo is saying. Um, a defeat of Russia in Ukraine could trigger a nuclear war. That's what uh, Mr. Medvedev said. And the head of the Russian Orthodox Church said that the world would end if the West tried to destroy Russia. The defeat of a nuclear power in a conventional war may trigger a nuclear war. Nuclear power Powers have never lost major conflicts on which their fate, on which their entire fate depends, said Mr. Medvedev, who served, served as president from 2008 to 2012. So this is a warning from uh, Russia to NATO. So this is something that you could expect as part of, of the saber rattling during a conflict. What else is happening? Take a look at this. This is... a. Uh, so Russia seems to be deploying S-400 and Panzer units inside Moscow. We know what the S-400 is. S-400 is the is, is one of the best missile defense systems in the world. It can take out ballistic missiles. It can take out uh, aircraft. It can take out a wide range, a wide number, wide range of aerial threats. So it is, uh, I mean, it's to be expected that they will deploy the S-400 inside Moscow, but they're also deploying Panzer units. So the Panzer system is a point defense system. The S-400 can, can defend an entire territory, an entire city, even an entire country in some cases, if the country is small. So the S-400 can defend a large territory. The Panzer is a different kind of beast. It is designed to defend a single point, like a single building. 
like let's say the Kremlin in Moscow. And the Americans have similar uh, systems that they use to defend the White House and all that. So we are seeing these deployments in Moscow right now. Uh, so the speculation over here is that this is rather interesting, could indicate that Moscow is planning something that could conceivably bring the full might of NATO into the Ukraine war. Is Putin about to nuke Kiev? Uh, that's the speculation that's being expressed here. I would say that is a little far-fetched that Putin would, you know, uh, unilaterally use nuclear weapons. That uh, And, you know, that, that could trigger off a whole, uh, you know, it could bring the cat out of the box. It is highly unlikely that Putin would do that unilaterally unless there is a significantly grave provocation. But yes, this is something that we are seeing right now. Uh, Moscow is fortifying its its defenses. It's ramping up its defenses. That's interesting and that could uh, indicate something. What else? So clearly, this this last point, I would believe, I would say personally that this is a very far fetched speculation. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon if it ever happens. Now, uh, Russia is going to make major changes to armed forces from 2023 to 2026. Uh, it will shake up its military structure after months of setbacks on the battlefield in Ukraine. That's what Reuters is saying. Reuters is a Western outlet. So we can expect them to put in some propaganda and some opinion in there. But the news is that Russia is going to make major changes to its armed forces from 2023 to 2026. In addition to administrative reforms, uh, the Russians will strengthen the combat capabilities of the naval, aerospace and strategic missile forces. So that is what Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu said. Yes. So, yeah, that's part of what's happening. The Russians are fortifying and strengthening the armed forces. What else is happening? Block this. Uh, Russia is moving to leave European treaties. Yes, Moscow is set to renounce charters related to the Council of Europe. Russia will adopt a law that will formally end the country's participation in 21 treaties and charters related to the Council of Europe. Moscow withdrew from the human rights body last March, claiming it had been captured by the US and its allies and only serves Western political objectives. Yeah. Uh, so this is happening. Charter for the Council of Europe, the Convention of the, for the Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms, European Convention for the Suppression of Terrorism, and so on and so forth. All these charters and uh, treaties, Moscow is now officially, formally withdrawing from these treaties and charters. Essentially, what you are seeing is we are witnessing the official decoupling of Russia from Europe. We are witnessing the official divorce of Russia from Europe. It was already unofficially more or less there, but now this makes it all official. Russia is divorcing itself from Europe, decoupling from Europe. It is now, well, essentially an, uh, an Eastern power now. Yeah, It's always been regarded as an Eastern power, but now this, this that's where we are. What else? The US, this is from today. It's from today. No, this is from a long time ago, but yeah, the Americans, as we know, this is from uh, December last year. The Americans have been announcing all kinds of aid. This is almost $2 billion military aid for, for Ukraine, and more is pouring in. So in the context of this, let's see what's happening. The Netherlands uh, says that it will send Patriot missile assistance to Ukraine. The Patriot missile system is, like is uh, again, a point defense system. It can defend an entire city or maybe some points within a city against incoming uh, missile attacks. Uh, it first saw action, the Patriot missile system first saw action during the first Gulf War 
in which it was deployed to defend Tel Aviv from Saddam Hussein's Scud missiles. And the Patriot missile system did not do a very good job at the, at the time. It took out some Scud missiles, but it also failed. And then the missiles would come back down and hit parts of Tel Aviv, Patriot missiles. But now I'm sure it has uh, been improved very much. It must be almost unrecognizable. So the Netherlands is going to send Patriot missile assistance to Ukraine. This is from three, four days ago. Now there is this, uh, uh, yeah, leopard tanks. So the Ukrainians want tanks, main battle tanks. And they are asking for German leopard tanks. The Germans are refusing. No leopard tanks for Ukraine as NATO allies failed to agree. The failure to agree to provide German tanks to Ukraine may signal growing divisions within NATO over supplying heavy weapons amid Russian warnings. So the Americans and the Ukrainians want Germany to supply these Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. Germany is refusing. German indecision on Leopard 2 tanks, a disappointment. Ukraine's deputy foreign foreign minister says. So they are putting pressure on Germany. And as we know, Germany is a US satellite state. Germany is under permanent US military occupation. The German constitution has been written by Americans, more or less. Yeah. So and, and, and the US has permanent military bases in Germany, maybe even nuclear weapons, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe I'm mistaken. But yeah, that's the deal. So, and Germany is saying, no, we will not do this. So they are kind of challenging the master, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, what else? So this is from 16 hours ago. Germany yet to make decision on sending tanks, which means they are dilly-dallying, they're dragging their feet and they don't, they don't want to do it. What else? Western defense leaders fail to resolve divisions over tanks in Ukraine. This is a crucial moment, they're saying. Russia is regrouping, recruiting and trying to re-equip. The U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin warned as the meeting opened. So he is, they are, the Americans are warning the Germans. Uh, this is uh, by Urmas Reinsalu, the Minister, Minister of Foreign Affairs of the Republic of Estonia, which is a very small, tiny nation. Uh, we, the various foreign ministers of, this, of these nations, call on Germany to provide leopard tanks to Ukraine now. This is needed to stop Russian aggression, help Ukraine and restore peace in Europe quickly. Germany as the leading European power has special responsibility in this regard. That is factually incorrect. The leading European power is the US, not Germany. Germany is a US puppet state, satellite state. What's the word? What's the word? Vassal state. So all these people are trying to place, exert pressure on Germany. They're, they're turning up the dial, they're dialing up the heat on Germany. And there's this article uh, from uh, NBC News. Top U.S. officials don't want to give Ukraine tanks despite German pressure. So there is pressure from both sides. The Germans are saying the Americans must first provide M1A2 Abrams tanks, main battle tanks, to Ukraine. So if the Americans do this, then the Germans will go ahead and also send some Leopard 2 tanks. So the Germans want the Americans to send these tanks first. The Americans don't want to do it. They only want German Leopard 2 tanks in Ukraine. They don't want the M1A2 Abrams tank, American tank in Ukraine. What's happening here? Why is all, all of this happening? The Americans insist that Germany should send Leopard 2 tanks. The Germans are saying, you need to send your tanks first. What's actually happening is that both of these nations are unwilling to see their tanks reduced to rubble in this conflict. Yeah? Yeah. Because historically, historically, 
Russian soil, which I'm USSR soil, let's say, which includes Ukraine. Historically, that soil has been a graveyard for foreign tanks. Yeah. And uh, yeah, if, if these tanks get into Ukraine, you could see, soon see these tanks exposed. I'm not saying these are terrible tanks. They are good tanks, maybe the some of the best tanks in the world. And yet, tanks are kind of, you could say, somewhat obsolete, somewhat to some extent these days. Yeah, this is the 21st century. We saw what happens to tanks in, in various other conflicts. Yeah, so... Uh, both Germany and the US are kind of reluctant to see what would happen to the tanks, what could happen to the tanks if they find themselves in an active war, in an active battle against Russia. Because despite, you know, when when news outlets put out these, these pictures of a whole bunch of destroyed German tanks or a whole bunch of destroyed American tanks, it looks very bad. It look it makes those nations look extremely weak and ineffective and it makes it look like the Russians are winning which may, they might be winning yeah so that's why both these nations are unwilling to send the, their most advanced tanks to Ukraine they would uh, Ukrainians already have a bunch of tanks yeah let's see what, what's being said here um, a lot of frustration and so on sending Abrams tanks to Ukraine Biden was non-committal um, and all that the Ukrainians already have a whole lot of tanks don't they but not the latest ones so that's the tug of war we are seeing. The Americans are okay with German tanks being destroyed in Ukraine. They don't want their tanks to be destroyed. And the Ukraine, the Germans are saying, you send your tanks first. Or if you do that, we will send our tanks. In the end, let's see what happens. But yeah, so clearly both nations are afraid of what could happen to their precious you know, tanks <laughs> in an actual battle with the Russian forces. Yeah, uh, that's what's happening. Uh, in, in, in the Ukraine conflict. Now, something else that is uh, an outcome of the Ukraine conflict is the battle for oil, right? So let's see what's happening in the battle for oil. What's happening? Check a look, take a look at this. Uh, this is, uh, India is breaking all records for buying Russian oil. But who is the surprise buyer? <laughs> That's the question. Despite sanctions, the US is snapping up refined petroleum products from India made from Russian crude oil. Isn't that very interesting? Uh, India's purchases of Russian crude oil have shot up to 1.7 million barrels per day in January, which is a steep rise from 1.2 million in December, which was even then the record level buying. And astonishingly, the US has emerged as the biggest buyer for the refined products. So India is refining the Russian oil and the refined products, the biggest buyer is the US despite Washington's entreaties to the rest of the world not to buy Russian fuel. This is what we call hypocrisy, yeah? Um, the US has traditionally been a big buyer of Russian refined product called Virgin Gas Oil VGO. Now it can't buy VGO directly from Russia. So it's purchasing the same thing from Indian refineries run by Reliance Energy and Nayara Energy. And the VGO from these refineries is made from Russian crude oil. <laughs> the, the US is buying 200,000 2 lakh barrels per day of finished products, mainly VGO from Reliance. The biggest destination country of Indian products is surprisingly the US. Isn't that nice? Yeah. What else? Analysts see link between rising Indian oil product expo exposed to US and surge in Russian crude oil imports. So essentially what we are seeing is 
the Americans are, I think in November, December, they both of these months, the Americans bought more than 500 million, half a billion dollars worth of these pro products from India. The U.S. has become the largest buyer of, of, of these products from, from India processed from Russian crude oil. So the Americans have imposed all these sanctions on Russia. And then they are now circumventing these sanctions by buying the products that they, that they need from India. So who's winning this, this little thing? India is winning this. India is benefiting. Uh, what else? Not just uh, U.S., even the British, even the U.K., is, is now buying these product, products from India. The UK step up, steps up imports from India's biggest refinery, which imports crude oil from Russia. And this is under the paywall. I don't care. That's fine. But the British and the Americans, mainly the Americans, also the British, and maybe some other countries also, are buying these uh, refined products from India. So yeah, good for India, right? What else is happening? So uh, overall, the situation is kind of... Uh, Calm. I'm not not exactly calm. There are battles happening in Bakhmut. Soledar has been taken by the Russians, and the, the, there is activity all across the the frontier, the the line of control right now, line of actual control, in uh, southern and eastern Ukraine, the Donbas region. Uh, Belarus may come into the picture. The Rasputitsa season is more or less over over now. Rasputitsa, in case you don't know, is the mud season in autumn and in spring. You have the mud season in Ukraine. Uh, when there is rain and the ground, the terrain is is very muddy and boggy, very difficult for armored advances like tank advances. In winter, the ground freezes, which is the best time for a major winter offensive with armor, with, with tank regiments and all that. So now winter is more or less there. There's been kind of a heat wave in Europe, but in the few, coming few days, there is expected to be a new cold front coming into Europe, which means the ground will then freeze completely solid if it is not frozen already. Yeah. So there has been speculation of, and I personally am responsible for the speculation that there could be a major Russian winter offensive. Well, winter is here and let's see what happens. Yeah. But clearly things are moving in a variety of directions the russians are officially divorcing from the 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 from europe they are they are withdrawing from all the treaties and agreements and accords yeah uh, the americans and the germans are unwilling to send their tanks into ukraine but they are sending in money and with various other supplies uh, pressure is on germany more than the us oil is flowing into india and from india it's flowing to other places and it looks like this could be the calm before the storm there could be a winter offensive, maybe from Belarus, maybe from two, from from multiple angles, yeah, from Russia as well as Belarus. Who knows? So we need to wait and watch. But that is the situation. Someone is saying that uh, Akash Dixit is saying February will be scary for Ukraine. That is a possibility. There have been multiple waves of Russian missile strikes across Euro Ukraine in the past week, past two weeks. We are witnessing that. So they've they've been taking out the electricity grid, the power grid, and other targets. So there could be something coming. That's that's what I have predicted. Let's see if my prediction turns out to be correct. Or if I am made to eat my words, we will see. But from the perspective of logic, the logic of strategy, it looks like there could be a Russian winter offensive in the offing, maybe in February, Jan January. We are already like three weeks into January. Nothing has happened thus far, but something could be happening. So that is the deal with Ukraine. And we will, as usual, keep an eye on this. We're going to keep talking about this as and when things happen and as the situation evolves. What else shall we talk about? Let's talk about the United States, Estados Unidos of America. 
So what's happening in the US? So this, we are now in the year 2023. I'm, I'm sure you all know that, <laughs> stating the obvious. This is a very political year in the world's two largest democracies. Uh, the oldest democracy, like they say, is, is the US, which is what they like to claim. India is the world's oldest democracy, actually. Let's not go there. That's, that's uh, beside the point. So the US is going to witness the presidential elections in 2024. And India will witness the general elections in 2024. So 2023 is a pivotal year. It's a crucial year. It's a very political year in the US and in India. So just one brief piece of news from the US. So, you know, lots of people will announce their presidential candidature for the 2024 race. So one of them is this lady, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley who uh, is a, a Republican. Yeah. So she has now, she is now kind of expressing her desire or the possibility that she could run uh, in the 2024 presidential elections. Yeah. She has shared her feelings about being the next new leader after Joe Biden's presidency completes and he may not get a second term. That's also something we need to see. Will Joe Biden get a second term or will he be made to sit down? Yeah. Uh, when you're looking at a run for, for president, you look for uh, you look at two things. First of all, you say you ask yourself, does the current situation push for something new? And the second question is, am I that person that could be that new leader? Do I think I could be that new leader? Yes. But we are still working through things and we'll figure it out. I have never lost a race. I said that then and I still say that now I am not going to lose now. Right? And, you know, during President Trump's uh, tenure as the president, lots of officials came and went. Uh, you know, the runtime the, the, the run was very short. But in the case of Nikki Haley, she was one official who actually came out of this entire situation with her credentials burnished and enhanced. She was the UN uh, ambassador to the... Uh, she was the US ambassador to, to the UN. And eventually she herself stepped down. And she came out of this with her credentials and her reputation enhanced. Yeah. So this is uh, about that new leader and all that. Uh, I am not going to make an announcement here. She's 51 years old, which is quite young in terms of uh, being a politician and all that. So she is the former governor of one of these states. Which state? South Carolina, right? She is of Indian origin. Uh, yeah. So she could be somebody who puts, who throws her hat into the ring and, and she could run for president. Yeah. Her actual name is Nimrata Randhava, and now she's called Nikki Haley. That's what Indians typically have to do. They have to anglicize their names in the US. Even the Chinese do that. Yep. Anyhow, so that's the situation. So things are slowly going to heat up in the US, and uh, we may see uh, interesting people uh, stand for president. So one of them could be Nikki Haley. She's still exploring things, but it is a possibility. Yeah. And she could this time be a challenger to Trump because Trump has already announced his intention to run for president. So there will first be a you know the, the runoff in the Republican Party itself. Multiple people from the Republican Party will put up their hat in the ring, and there will be a runoff election within the Republican Party. The what is it called? I forget the term for it. But then one person will win that, and that person will stand against whoever is there from the Democratic Party. Maybe it's Biden. Maybe it's somebody else. We'll see. So that is an interesting piece of news that has come out. Okay, let's talk about something else. Uh, so yes, 
obviously 2024 is very important for the us it's also very important for india and i have said this before that there's going to be a wave of propaganda from the west about india because the, the chinese as well as the the west want uh, the current government of india to lose hopefully in the 2024 election and they want a weak government to come to power because this india is something they don't they don't like this india is standing up for itself it is prioritizing its own national interest over everything else it is unwilling to 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 toe the western line when it comes to ukraine to russia other things india is prioritizing its own national interest and india is doing really well the indian economy is growing now and india is projected to really become very powerful in the next 10 20 years they don't want this to happen they now see india as a bigger threat in the long term in the next 20 30 40 years than china yeah that's the kind of potential india has india has not even unlocked 10% of its, of its potential right now so that's why the west would like mr modi to lose the next election 2024 and for that they will unleash a wave of propaganda in 2023 and you know they have the power of the social media they control the platforms and all that so it's definitely very feasible for them to try and influence the opinions the hearts and minds of indians yeah so we are now beginning to witness the first uh, the first traces the first inklings of that so let's take a look at a few instances of this which i have been able to see and there's much more so it all starts with this tweet here this is this is somebody called end wokeness yeah and it says that this chart totally obliterates the woke narrative about race in america yeah uh, that the whites are the are the most privileged or whatever and all that so the median household income in the us by ethnic group obviously the, we all know the indian americans are the most prosperous and most successful uh, ethnicities in the us they earn more and they are more successful than the filipino americans the taiwanese the sri lankan the japanese the malaysians the chinese americans the pakistani americans and the white americans indians are they out outstrip everybody by 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 far yeah so uh so that is something that has been known for a very long time the indians are the most highly educated and they have the highest median average household income of any ethnic groups by far by a long distance in the us yeah so this is something uh, that's been known and now there was this lady called lena lockteff or whatever she uh, she put out this very uh nasty tweet racist tweet indians leave their country of 1.38 billion come to america and the west and claim minority status to get all the perks then they practice nepotism and get ahead on the shoulders of europeans while we get attacked isn't diversity great so she is attacking indians oh, i'm not sure if if indians have ever claimed any minority status indians don't even want to be visible in the west you don't see any visibility of indians in in the media in entertainment anything else very few indian origin politicians also despite them being the most successful ethnic group in the us and there is no such thing as minority status in the west and what perks are indians getting they are succeeding because they work the hardest and they 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 educate themselves the most yeah they don't get any perks they have not earned yeah obviously lots of these silicon valley companies and all all these fortune 500 companies more and more of these companies are now have indian origin ceos and that's something that makes some people jealous and we are witnessing that so yeah yes yeah, so this is something that uh, this became quite a big thing this tweet and who is this lady she works for this red ice tv and they have this story indians say that they are taking over corporate america obviously this is going to be a story that's going to be very anti india and very anti indian maybe hindophobic i have not seen it i don't have the time and, and the <laughs> inclination to to watch to waste 11 minutes of my life but there you are 
so that's the kind of uh, propaganda you're seeing here what else do we have now i know people are, i know what people are saying in the saying in the live chat so here we are bbc documentary about pm modi uh, so the bbc came up with this uh, documentary about prime minister modi about the 2002 incident mm-hmm. uh, the the thing yeah um so india obviously the foreign ministry of india has responded it says that the bbc documentary on india on mr modi is pure propaganda uh terming the bbc documentary as a propaganda piece meant to push a discredited narrative the indian foreign ministry spokesperson mr arindam bagchi said a bias lack of objectivity and continuing colonial mindset is blatantly visible in it in this documentary it makes us wonder about the purpose of this exercise in the agenda behind it and we do not wish to dignify such efforts so uh uh it's a propaganda piece and all that uh, it's it's uh, a discredited na- narrative there is a lack of objectivity it does not rely on the actual facts and all that which we all know very well so so that's what we have seen yeah and now instead of me going ahead and and expressing my views about this let's take a look at what indian social media is talking about various people yeah so we have this tweet by kabir bedi the actor this documentary is an utterly biased documentary by bbc news claiming modi's india is in religious turmoil harping on de- decades old allegations long settled by the indian judiciary the indian courts right and this documentary completely disregards these facts that this matter has been totally completely settled by the indian judiciary by the indian courts including the highest court the supreme court it ignores all the various judgments all the acquittals and the supreme court judgment itself the highest highest court in the country right so it's gutter journalism says kabir bedi scavenging for sensationalism blind to the bigger picture what else uh perfectly timed choreography bbc documentary on modi voice of america piece on zubair sadanand dhume waxing eloquent on freedom rankings in the wall street street journal mr tapasvi ending his yatra climax before the republic day this that my friends is an internationally scripted toolkit in action there are no coincidences all of this is happening at the same time it is all being scripted from outside india this is something we see over and over again this is all part of a concerted propaganda campaign which is just beginning what else varun kumar rana <laughs> there are two indias yes other two indias <laughs> uh, i come from an india where some people demand evidence from the indian army but they believe everything from a bbc documentary <laughs> very good tweet what else Hope India says Britain's committed commitment to strong institutions. The BBC. So we have small causes courts. Above them is the Sessions Court. Above that is the District Court. Above that is the High Court. Above that is the Supreme Court. And above everything else is the BBC documentary. <laughs> uh, nice, good, good, good cartoon. What else? Pishi Bagri says the Kashmir files was a lie, but this BBC documentary is gospel truth. <laughs> nice, nice, nice to see this. What else? ANI says retired judges retired bureaucrats and retired armed forces veterans co-sign a statement rebutting the BBC documentary as delusions of british imperial resurrection delusions of grandeur right so yeah it's uh, it's a uh, it's the report about this not only is the BBC series judging from what we have seen of it so far based on delusional reporting but presumes to question the very basis of 75 year old edifice of india's existence as an independent democratic nation that functions according to will the will of its people 
it's BBC's ploy to demolish Modi before 2024 polls. They will use media to target Modi. BBC has ruined its credibility by coming out with this series and so on. Uh, that's by P.K. Segal. The Western world wants to find fault with Modi. And unfortunately for them, the more they indulge in this, the greater will be the belief of the Indian people that <laughs> Modi is something that's absolutely ex- essential for India to progress. And various other people have weighed in. This is uh, Madam Baspati Mukherjee, ex-ambassador of India to the Netherlands. Uh, Ex-DGMO Lieutenant General uh, A.K. Chaudhary, former Raw Chief Sanjeev Tripathi, and lots of other people have <laughs> spoken about this. It's very clear that this is blatant propaganda, very agenda-driven propaganda. They would like to see this current government fall. They would like India to have a very weak, pliable, malleable government in 2024. And that this is the beginning of that wave of propaganda. Yeah. What else? Several ex-judges, ambassadors, armed forces, veterans, etc. in a letter have slammed the BBC over a documentary on PM Modi. It's time to let the BBC know that India does not need colonial, in- imperialistic and somnambulistic outsiders. Get out. We don't need you. It's written by 302 ex-officials. Yeah, that's what's happening. What else? Uh, this is by Nivedita Tiwari. The primary t- this is an interesting tweet, yeah? And, and several people have opined about this, have said this. Uh, the primary target of the BBC documentary is Rishi Sunak's allegiance, right? Rishi Sunak is the current prime minister of the UK. He's of Indian origin. He's a Hindu. And he is kind of outwardly Hindu. He's proudly Hindu. He is not one of those people who, who kind of hides his Hinduness. So the primary target of the BBC documentary is Rishi Sunak's allegiance. Hurting the Indian PM's image is a tangential game. Gain. The world is equating the rise of India with the rise of the Hindus. These hit jobs will continue with inside help. Our allegiance must be to truth. Very interesting perspective, yes. So they are trying to kill two birds with one stone. They are trying to uh, uh, hurt the Indian Prime Minister's image, maybe internationally, maybe also in India. But they are also targeting Rishi Sunak. Yeah, interesting, interesting. What else? Even the Chinese are trying to jump on this. This is Mr. Hu Jixin. Uh, if any of my Chinese viewers are watching, I apologize for the pronunciation. I am not an expert in Chinese names. Uh, so this guy is a very prominent Chinese uh, personality on social media. Obviously, he is affiliated with the CCP. He used to be the editor, chief editor, I believe, of the of the Global Times. Now he's a commentator. He's been demoted, but he's still, uh, you know, he's got a very wide reach. The UK has the colonial mentality of a suzerain state towards India which means it still sees India as a vassal state, very funny. And now it's even more uncomfortable due to being surpassed by its former colony in GDP. The more India develops, the more friction it will have with the the UK. So the Chinese are also, uh, you know, grudgingly saying that India is developing and the more it develops, which means it is, they expect India to develop more and more. So yeah, interesting to see the Chinese trying to, uh, you know, get uh, get into this story. And this is uh, a piece by Nikai Asia which I showed showed earlier. That's what it is. So interesting, the Chinese want to get involved in this matter. And they are also, well, acknowledging the fact that India is growing and India is going to keep on growing and developing. Very interesting. So this is uh, something that happened. What else is happening? Let's take a look at what Oxfam India has to say. Oxfam is, is up to its old propaganda, the standard propaganda. Let's not go here. The 21 wealthiest billionaires in India possess more wealth than 700 million Indians. This must stop. We must stop having rich people. Join Oxfam India's campaign against inequality. Blah, blah, blah. And they have this very provocative, suggestive cartoon of uh, of Mr. Adani, you know, 
uh, and so on. So yeah, and if you see the comments, it's very clear what's happening here, <laughs> and on what uh, and how people uh, have reacted to this tweet by Oxfam. So uh, through this tweet, Oxfam India and Oxfam, which is a foreign organization, it is espousing povertarian povertarianism or whatever it is, povertarianism. Yeah, it's it's saying that it's it's espousing an anti wealth stance it says india should uh, there should be no rich people in india there should be no progress in india which is the implicit meaning of this because in a nation that pro that produces billionaires especially billionaires have, who have come up and risen through the ranks through their own hard work and merit not because they have stolen someone's money so they don't want this to happen I don't think any of India's billionaires, the various uh, people who have become really rich in the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years, I don't think they've stolen anyone's money. Yeah. The crony capitalism used to used to happen before before 2014. And we 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 know all about that. So um so they are trying to uh, put this in the minds of Indians that the that billionaires are bad. Being being rich is is bad. You should have poverty everywhere. Everybody should have the same equal equal, equal income level, which is impossible. There is no such thing as inequality in the world. Inequal equality, there, there's no such thing as equality in the world in nature. Equality is unnatural. So you see it all across everywhere around you in nature and even even in throughout human history. But what you need is a meritorious meritocratic society which india is slowly hopefully going towards uh, so so all of this propaganda you're seeing right now so th these are some examples that i was able to dredge up through from social media and other places this is just the beginning my friends the west is warming up they have an entire army of disposable minions at their disposal yeah people will come this we saw the first example of this in february march april last year when india refused to take the side of the west in and 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 uh, sanction russia or or criticize russia india took a neutral stance and then you had this entire outbreak of of vituperative hostile tweets and op-eds and think tank articles all that from the west many of them authored by penned by indians apparently indian origin people all that so we will see the same thing again i am telling you right now i'm, I'm making a prediction we're going to see the same thing again in 2023 uh yeah we're going to see that and this is just the beginning we they are just warming up we you can expect this propaganda to intensify the propaganda battle there's going to be a barrage of propaganda in the coming months there's going to be an avalanche of propaganda in the coming months and this is just the beginning yeah so we need to be aware of what these people are trying to do they are trying to influence the minds and the hearts of india of indians they're trying to interfere in the internal matters of india and they are trying to interfere in the 2024 elections and we know what sort of sort of election interference there has been in the in the West, in the US. The Twitter files have revealed everything. So this is uh, an age age old practice there. It's, it's something that they uh, routinely have been doing. Yeah. So that's where we are about this. Now, one last thing we will talk about before we end today's thing, today's episode, which has kind of surprised me. Let's put this on the screen. Uh, where are we? And that's why I said Indians are no longer that naive. <laughs> so this is a report by this SCMP, South China Morning Post. Indians see China as the number one military threat, followed by the US. 
survey finds. The poll found that 43% of Indian respondents perceived China as the greatest threat, with the US next ahead of arch rival Pakistan. They're still trying to hyphenate India and Pakistan and say that Pakistan is India's arch rival. Pakistan is no longer, you know, it's essentially a non-entity now. The real problem, like I've been saying, is China. But now Indians believe that China is the number one military threat and the US is the number two military, military threat ahead of Pakistan. Yeah. It also found that most Indians pray, place a greater blame on NATO and Washington than on Putin for the war in Ukraine. What is happening? Indians are growing up. Indians are now no longer that naive. Isn't that very interesting? Yeah. What else? Let's let's take a look at a graphic. This is from the Times of India. 43% China is the 43% of respondents believe that China is the number one military threat. And 22% of them believe the US is the biggest military threat, military threat. And then you have Pakistan and Russia, apparently. <laughs> and then Iran and the whatever, whatever. So that's very interesting. And they see the US and, and China as military threats, not as geopolitical threats or economic threats, military threats. So, uh, yeah, it looks like the Indian um, uh, perception of geopolitics is evolving. It is becoming more realistic. Until 2018, 2019, 2020 also, Indians only thought of Pakistan as a threat. If you watched Indian news channels, they were all about Pakistan, Pakistan, Pakistan. When Prime Minister Modi goes to the US, the Indian news anchor will say, what about Pakistan? What about Pakistan? It was all Pakistan-centric. After the Doklam thing, after the uh, 2020 Galwan thing, that's when the focus shifted to China. I'm glad. But now Indians even believe that the US is a major military threat. And, you know, the US is the global military superpower the global overall superpower. So, yeah, it is a threat to, it, it is potentially a threat to any nation in the world. So, I think the Indian perception of geopolitics is becoming more realistic. And I'm glad to see that. Yeah, I'm not saying, or I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with what has been said here, but it's very interesting to see this very significant shift in the perception that Indians have of the US and China. China also and, and the US also. Very interesting. Pakistan is now only only 13% of, of, of respondents believe that Pakistan is, is a major threat, which is very eye-opening. So Pakistan now people see is a proxy of the US and China. And the big two threats are China and the US. Interesting. So yeah, I, I am glad that you all, I hope you are also, also part of that. So it, it's it's really good to see that, right? So with that, we come to the end of today's episode. Thank you very much for watching. We will continue talking about these topics and keeping an, an eye on all these developments. The coming weeks and months are going to be very interesting. February could be a very interesting month. Yeah. And uh, let's see how it goes. So, so thank you for watching. And I will see you tomorrow uh, in the live stream, in the Ask Abhijit live stream. Until then, take care. Thank you for watching. And see you later. See you soon. Bye.